Welcome, Litigation Nation. I'm your host, Luke Banke, alongside my co-host, Jack Sanker. For those of you new to the show, this is the podcast where we recap the most interesting legal news stories and talk to you about what you need to know. Jack, what do you got today? The White House is promulgating a rule change that would allow the administrative agencies to start calculating the economic value of natural capital. That means fresh water, natural resources, clean soil, etc., to be used in future rulemaking decisions. And a defamation case involving political contributions by a fossil fuel billionaire and Democratic gubernatorial, senatorial, presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke raises interesting First Amendment questions. All that and more, here's what you need to know. Up first, way back in episode 11 of the show, which we put out in March of 2022, we covered an initial ruling from a U.S. District Court granting an injunction on an executive order issued by the White House that would create a new methodology for calculating the social cost of carbon, nitrous oxide, and methane. And that new social cost figure that would then be relied upon by administrative agencies when considering new rules or legislation that might affect the climate. Now, in this case, the social costs are estimates of monetized damages associated with increases in greenhouse emissions. They're intended to include the effects of, on agricultural activity, human health, increased risks of flood, property damages, changes to the ecosystems, and other factors. Basically, this social cost executive order was an attempt by the White House to create an index of climate, ecological, agricultural net negatives, which then attempts to express those costs as a monetary figure. And once everyone can agree on the money cost of something's impact on the environment, then everyone can fairly debate the merits of policies against whatever the proposed benefits of those policies are. Basically, it's a way to take all these things that on their face are kind of intangible and turn them into something that is more tangible, which can then be considered rationally by decision makers. And put a pin in that. And by the way, if you want to hear more about that one, go ahead back to episode 11 and listen to my breakdown there. So in the news this week is a newly announced plan by the White House and the U.S. Department of Commerce to develop a set of statistics designed to capture the value of the nation's nature and that it provides to the economy. This is from the Law 360 write-up on the subject. Quote, the National Strategy to Develop Statistics for Environmental Economic Decisions is a collaborative effort between the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, Office of Management and Budget, and the Commerce Department. According to the agencies, national economic statistics do not account for the role in the value of underlying national assets, such as land, water, minerals, plants, and animals. Without natural capital reflected in national statistics, the United States cannot fully track the role of natural capital in driving economic growth, making it harder for public and private sectors to plan for the future, the agency said in a joint statement. Expanding the national economic accounting system to include natural capital will better capture the links between nature and the economy and lead to a more inclusive and comprehensive accounting of the U.S. economy. The idea behind the plan is that nature is a huge part of the nation's economic engine and that it's time to analyze that more closely. For example, the strategy document notes that minerals, water, pollinator species, and trees form the base of many supply chains and that natural landmarks drive many parts of the tourism economy and that nature protects infrastructure, and then it boosts health, unquote. I'll be honest, I love this stuff. I think that the, like the social cost measures for greenhouse gases, I just love the idea of a multidisciplinary group of experts trying to quantify the natural world so that policymakers can, and voters, 
uh, can use that data to make more rational decisions. According to the piece, some of this data actually already exists, um, but it's woefully incomplete. For example, the World Bank data suggests that between 2010 and 2018, the value of the United States held in forest and mangrove assets, forest and mangrove assets, uh, declined by 10%. And the value of 10 mineral resources holdings declined by 51%. Analysis of groundwater in Kansas between 1996 and 2005 revealed a decline in water wealth of about $1 billion while other analysis suggested that nationwide productivity from water across the United States rose 65% between 2000 and 2015. I mean, these terms to me are just so interesting. Productivity from water, uh, water wealth, uh, forest and mangrove assets. I think that these ideas of, of taking uh, the things that you know we're all supposed to care about in terms of the environment and fresh water and everything else and putting a number on them is just such a better way to bridge the gap to, you know, maybe people that don't prioritize the climate or prioritize climate change much and people who do. Um, so I think really this, um, it just sounds a lot better than the kind of vague complaints about, you know, climate change that you hear from activists. For example, if you say to people that increasing carbon production will lead to higher temperatures at some point, years or decades down the road, which could lead to higher shorelines or warmer temperatures or less yielding crops or more frequent hurricanes in distant parts of the country. And oh, by the way, you'll probably be dead by then. It's going to be hard to get people interested. But if you say, hey, relying on a certain fuel source as opposed to another is going to cost XYZ dollars in terms of environmental, economic and social damages, and that means more government spending, and that means your taxes might go up, then people will get interested. What do you think, Luke? Yeah, I, I think two things. Number one, what a massive undertaking this is. I mean, it it uh, it amazes me that we have that kind of capability to sort of uh, quantify um, the types of things that you're talking about. Uh, that's that's incredible. Number two, I I couldn't agree more with your statement about uh, you know making folks care when you put numbers on things, um, it, uh, to me anyway, it just, it makes it more real. Um, when, when you are, when you're talking about things like, uh, like climate change, I think you're right. And I, you know, I confess to being, uh, guilty of feeling the way that you just described, which is sort of like, yeah, I get that we should do something, but you know, I, hopefully my kids take care of it. Like, I don't, you know, I'm not walking outside and throwing litter on the ground and, you know, dumping gas from my lawnmower into my trees or whatever. But, uh, you know, I, it, it, it makes people care um, when you've got, when you've got numbers tied to these really big ideas. And um, I, you know, I'm, I think it's, I think it's great. Yeah, I mean, it makes a global issue uh, local, you know, for a lot of people. I, I remember um, uh, reading something, and, and I'll never be able to find what I was actually reading, but the gist of it was, um, you know, with a certain amount of rise in temperature in parts of uh, South and Central America, the average yield from like agriculture in that area is going to go down. And for every X amount of, of, you know, tons of agriculture yield goes down, there's like a direct correlation between migration. And so climate change 
is going to cause uh, agricultural yields to go down, which is going to cause immigration. And if you're a person who's concerned about, you know, immigration on the southern border, for example, if that's like, you know, the political issue you're worried about, then climate change is going to cause migration along the southern border. Like it just is. Um, so, it, you know, if you're uh, in Texas and you don't care about climate change and you, and you care about migration, like now all of a sudden, when you think about it that way, you should care about climate change, right? It's, it's going to affect, you know, your what's happening in your backyard. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know how these economists, statisticians are, are going to do it. Um, but, you know, I, there seems to be a lot of precedent for it. I, I mentioned the World Bank data um, about the you know, decline in water wealth and things like that. But if you can if you can make something like this, you know, more less esoteric, less kind of ethereal and more how does this affect my everyday life? You know, how does it affect uh, gas prices or how does it affect, uh, you know, my taxes or things like that? Then I think you'll see people, you know, really taking these policies a lot more seriously um, rather than just kind of vague complaints about global warming and things like that. And I mean, to take that one step further, maybe there maybe once you have people caring about these issues, you're actually taking action on some of these things versus just complaining about it, right? It's easy to sit back and be like, oh, climate change is a problem. It's like, well, what are you doing about it? You know, and maybe exactly. if you've got these um, figures, right, it's easy to say, well, look, here's what I'm doing about it. And, you know, I think the other thing is like, we may be getting on a tangent here, but like it allows the whatever intervention that, you know, we, we decide as a country we're going to do to be all that more specific and hopefully that more effective. You know, right. Like if tomorrow, for example, we banned all gas cars, like that would definitely decrease emissions by a huge amount. But that would also make a lot of people's lives a lot worse. Um, so we're not going to do that. Right. Uh, but if you could find the numbers um, to put behind, you know, policies where hopefully you could just tweak things here and there, um, you know, you could uh, make a certain amount of the energy economy um, based on renewables versus phasing out fossil fuels entirely, things like that. Um, any data that's going to allow, you know, smart decision makers and policymakers to do those things more accurately and effectively, um, I'm 100% behind. Yep. Yep. And if it's true, if these numbers bear out, look, you can make these small sort of incremental changes in your life. And this is the difference that it would make, you know, at least for me, right? I think that that would that would go a long way. I can't speak for everybody, but I, I, like you said, I think it's easier for folks to, to see these numbers, to see the, the things that they're doing in their life makes, makes changes that are bigger than just the little changes that they're making. And uh, when you have a bunch of people making these little changes, all of a sudden you've got a big impact. The one last thing I want to highlight is there, the, the plan in particular talks about how um, pollinator species and trees form the base of many supply chains. It was like a, a sentence I had to reread because I was just like, oh yeah. So they're talking about, you know, whether we have enough bees to grow food. And I've just never worried about that for a second in my life. And now I'm like, that's actually super important. And um, do we, you know, are, are we planting enough trees to replace the ones we're cutting down so that we can keep building houses so that hopefully everyone's, you know, housing prices uh, keep going up or whatever. Like I just, you know, this, this stuff that makes total sense when you put it in that context. 
but again, yeah, and, and I'm with you and you, you don't want to just sort of identify issues and then just sort of leave it out there and throw your hands in the air. Right. And I think if you again, if you've got these sort of tangible, you know, tangible things that you can see happening as a result of your actions, um, that's great. I mean, that's the only way we're going to get to where we need to get to. Right. Yep. I agree. I agree. There's an interesting First Amendment case in Texas with some political implications in the news involving Beto O'Rourke, who's the perpetual Democratic candidate for whatever election is next. I'm relying on a write-up from an outlet called uh, Lever News. The plaintiff in this case is a guy named Kelsey Warren. He's a billionaire who owns a fossil fuel company that was uh, behind the Dakota Access Pipeline. Warren is suing Beto over uh, campaign comments Beto made during the 2020 gubernatorial campaign regarding Warren's contributions to Beto's Republican opposition, Greg Abbott. Specifically, Beto criticized Warren for donating a million dollars to Abbott's campaign a few weeks prior to the election and shortly after Abbott signed legislation allowing fossil fuel companies like Warren's to opt out of weatherization regulations. Now, Warren's company is called Energy Transfer Partners, and according to its website, it moves nearly 30% of all natural gas and oil produced in the U.S. Beto insinuated that Warren's $1 million donation to Abbott was linked to the law that Abbott signed shortly thereafter, which accepted Warren's company from new regulations requiring additional weatherization. Now, that, that legislation was passed in the wake of the recent blackouts and gas outages in Texas, which, if you can remember, as I think last winter, where like half the state didn't have gas or electric in the middle of a historical cold spout. So here's one of the specific comments that Beto made that Warren is suing over. Quote, Kelsey Warren and Greg Abbott want us to stop talking about how Warren's company made over $2 billion in profits while Texans were freezing to death and then turned around and gave a million to Abbott's campaign, unquote. Warren also complained about the many ways in which Beto frequently used the term bribery to describe the donation. And what this boils down to probably is whether Kelsey Warren was a quote unquote public figure within the meaning of the Supreme Court jurisprudence. And more specifically, there's a kind of a subset of Supreme Court cases defining public figures and the rules around defamation, the uh, Gertz versus Robert Welch case from 1974, and this case is most instructive. And in the Gertz case specifically, the Supreme Court defines someone who, quote, voluntarily injects himself or is drawn into a particular public controversy and therefore becomes a public figure for a limited range of issues as a limited purpose public figure. And this is more limited than, say, a true public figure like a politician or a movie star or something like that which you're generally allowed to say a lot more about before you get into trouble for defamation. Uh, there's a couple of different tests in the different federal circuits, but I, I picked one of the fourth circuit because I think it's pretty good. And it defines a limited purpose public figure as someone who had access to channels of effective communication, voluntarily assumed a role in special prominence in a public controversy, sought to influence the resolution or outcome of that controversy, the controversy existed prior to the publication of the def defamatory statement, and the figure retained a public figure status at the time of the alleged defamation, yada, yada, yada. 
For a public figure who is a plaintiff in a defamation suit to succeed, generally you have to prove that the defamatory statements were made with actual malice, i.e. with the intent to cause the plaintiff harm. This is usually a pretty high burden, and it's why defamation suits by public figures are pretty rare, and they don't succeed very frequently. Here, Warren's team is saying that he is a private citizen, and there's, I think, a pretty legitimate argument to be made here on both sides. Warren's lawyer sets it out pretty succinctly. Quote, what they're asking you to do here is conclude that a million dollar or any campaign contribution makes you a public figure, opens you up to attack that you can't defend against unless you prove actual malice, and there is no precedent for that whatsoever, unquote. Now, on the one hand here, just kind of shooting from the hip, a billionaire oil magnate who donates millions of dollars to political campaigns feels like a public figure. But I understand the point that Warren's lawyer is making. If simply donating a million dollars to a campaign is sufficient to make someone a public figure, that has wider implications. I mean, I've donated donated money to campaigns in the two to three figures, not the seven figures, but I don't think that would make me a public figure. So is the thresh is there a threshold dollar amount or donations above a certain amount enough to make someone a limited purpose public figure? That idea seems kind of problematic. Now, then again, campaign contributions are constitutionally protected speech, as the Supreme Court has famously ruled. And if we get back to the definition of limited public figure offered by the Fourth Circuit, I think that's helpful. So did Warren have access to effective communication? Yes. Did he voluntarily assume a role of special prominence? Well, I think running the company that was at least partially blamed for those blackouts and gas outages in 2020 and then publicly opposing regulations to remedy the issues that most people blame the blackouts on, the lack of weatherization, is voluntarily assuming a role of special prominence, especially because the company is privately held and Kelsey is the chairman. And did he seek to influence the controversy regarding the weatherization of utilities? It's hard to say, but if he lobbied against the weatherization bill, which I think he did, then yes, campaign contribution to Abbott probably also checks that box. So I think that ultimately he's probably a quote-unquote limited purpose public figure under this analysis. Now, on the flip side is, what if Beto loses? Criticizing the receipt of political donations and criticizing donors for attempting to influence or even bribe politicians is kind of a fundamental principle of free speech and pretty common in our politics, right? Like that's uh, politics 101. If a party takes money from special interests, it's always been fair game to go after them for it. So if Beto loses, it would upend what I think is a pretty normal American tradition of politicians on both sides taking political donations and then lobbying corruption accusations back and forth against each other. That's like 60% of all political ad campaigns. So with all of that, I do think ultimately that Beto is likely to probably win this. But I, I think the question posed, which is, does simply donating to a campaign make you a public figure? I think that kind of intentionally misframes the question because this this uh, Kelsey figure did a lot more than that. Um, and donating to a campaign isn't as – does not fully entail what it was that he did in this case. I mean he ran the company that would have been directly affected by the bill and was at least in, in the minds of a lot of people partially to blame for those blackouts that happened, which are the reason for the bill in the first place. So what do you think, Luke? Uh, I've got a lot of thoughts on that, right? Number one, I, I don't think being rich makes you a, a public figure, I agree. Um, which I think you've touched on. And I don't, you know, I don't think there's any debate 
there, at least among us. I mean, other people will say, well, you know, he's got a lot of money and they conflate the two. Uh, I don't think they're the same. Um, number two, defamation cases are are always hard because you got to show uh, damages, uh, too. And so, you know, someone says something that you don't like, you sue them and then the judge goes, OK, you know, what what were the damages that were caused by this statement? You go, well, I don't know. He called me a jerk. It's like, OK, well, did you lose a deal? Did your wife divorce you? Like what what is the problem with that? And, and oftentimes people can't point to any, you know, actual damages that they sustained as a result of the alleged defamatory statement. Um, and the third thing I'll say is, you know, there, there are sort of two rules, right, that I, uh, I, I generally practice by. Number one, you know, as a litigator, you don't blow deadlines. Number two, uh, you don't get into legal fights with billionaires. And so um, it, t- you, you've said, OK, you know, I think maybe maybe Beto wins this thing. Um, let's call this for what it is. Right? I mean, that would be a Pyrrhic victory. The, the reason that this billionaire is suing Beto is because he hates him and he wants to drown him and he wants him to spend a bunch of money and he wants to be a pain in his side. Right. So I don't think the billionaire, I believe it or not, Jack, I've been in lawsuits with uh, some billionaires. They don't really care whether they win or lose. Right. I mean, they're making a point here. Um, and yeah. I think I think let's not lose sight of the fact that um, maybe it's not a fact, but let, let, let's call this thing what it is. Right. I mean, it's a billionaire trying to cause major headaches for Beto. And I think he's going to succeed in that, regardless of yeah. whether Beto wins in court. Certainly. And uh, I, I totally agree. Um, I, I also think that there's probably like a, you know, a small cohort of of like billionaires who like are, are always in the press, like uh, like like Elon, like Jeff Bezos, who are probably like cheering this case on. They're like, yeah, I would love to be able to sue these guys who keep keep dragging my name. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if there was you know quite the cheerleading section behind this case. Uh, legally, I don't think that it, it's going to it's going to work. But for all the reasons you mentioned, um, it's got some, it's got some oomph to it. You know, it, it, stranger things have happened. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think Beto's going to think twice before making the same comments about other billionaires. Certainly. Which is, which is the point, right? That's a, um, you know, uh, what, uh, it's a chilling effect, right? That's, that's what that'll boil down to. And, and, um, you know, when these campaigns happen again, and when Beto's running for whatever he's running for in 2024, um, you know, he probably won't repeat the same comments about donors. And I think you can also, you could thread the needle, you know, you could, you could criticize the candidate um, and probably criticize the company without naming names of, you know, the owner of the company and, and, and things like that. Um, and, and that would just keep you out of the crossfire here um, going forward. What do you think this lawsuit is going to cost this billionaire? If you take it through to trial, 150, mm-hmm. 200. Jeez. I have no idea. I Say mean, it's that he loses that in the couch cushions in like you know, ten minutes, right? right I mean, not even. Right. So, um, you know, put put that in perspective <laughs> and for what it's worth, follow the money. Yeah, I agree. That's the show for today. Uh, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, if you have thoughts on any of these stories, let us know what you think. You can either leave your comments below or email us. Talk to you in a couple weeks.